Hey, this is Julius the Snoof from the Bingle Puppet Troop. You're listening to Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show, the podcast where nostalgia comes alive. Roll it! Welcome to Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show, the podcast where nostalgia comes alive. Since July of 2021, Jake and his friends have interviewed professionals in the worlds of acting, directing, writing, puppeteering, and many more. Who will they be chatting with in this week's interview? Find out in this Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show episode. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show, a podcast from Nostalgia Comes Alive. Have you here with us today? I'm your host, Jake Duffenbaugh, Mooty, as always, our co-host, Chris Bixby, and Matt Bingle. How you guys doing? Doing great. Jake, doing how are you? Good. It's good to hear. I'm doing great. As always, Matt, what do we have for today? Joining us is a renowned author and the brilliant mind behind the beloved and mischievous Roger Rabbit. With his groundbreaking work, he has shaped the landscape modern storytelling, blending humor, mystery, and fantasy in a way that transcends the boundaries of imagination. Mr. Gary K. Wolf. Gary, welcome. How you doing? Hey, thank you very much. Uh, that was a really nice introduction. Uh, nice to be here. Actually, at my age, nice to be anywhere. Oh. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, we, we've heard that before. So to kick this off, we know who you are. But for those who don't, would you care to introduce yourself a little bit and what you do? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm Gary K. Wolf. Um, back in uh, 1980, uh, I sold uh, a novel called Who Censored Roger Rabbit uh, to... Walt Disney and uh, Disney took that movie and used it to as, uh, to create the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I then worked with Disney and Spielberg uh, to produce that movie, which uh, succeeded beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Uh, earned me four Academy Awards, multiple screenwriting uh, deal with Disney, and I've since written three other. Toontown novels who plugged Roger Rabbit, uh, in which we standardized on the four-piece stutter, uh, then who whacked Roger Rabbit, uh, and most recently, Jessica Rabbit, Serious Business, a serious spell with an X, uh, which tells the, uh, the origin story of Jessica, Roger, uh, Toontown, explains where Toons came from, how Toontown came to be. Uh, I've done all four of those novels. I also do uh, other stuff. I've got uh, I've got a major, major live action animation uh, movie in production right now. Uh, I can't nice. tell you any more about it because awesome. the studio hasn't announced it yet. And uh, that's what the studio does. They announce and uh, I can't I can't do that. But I've also got a 12 episode uh animated tv series uh in the works plus a uh, bunch of other stuff so um you know if you just know me from my roger rabbit work uh great uh but uh, I, I do a whole lot of other stuff too awesome so what was your background like and how did you grow up well i uh i grew up in a small farm town in illinois called earlville there's 1400 people uh, in, in my entire school, there were a hundred, a hundred kids. There were 25 kids in my class. And, um, I was, I was kind of lucky uh, in a lot of ways because I had really, really good parents who kind of encouraged me. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, when I was in the, uh, I don't know, second or third grade, I can't remember exactly which, but in one of those grades, our teacher gave us a, uh, a picture to color and the the whole object of coloring this picture was to stay inside the lines that was that was the only objective uh, and the picture showed a, a typical kind of farm scene there was a farmhouse there was a barn um, there was a fence there was a meadow and there was a one cow out in the middle of the out in the middle of the meadow so uh, you know i took it home that night and i you know and nobody was better at staying inside the lines than I was. So I thought, ah, this is going to be a really easy assignment for me. So I 
colored the meadow green, uh, I colored the fence brown, I colored the barn red, I colored the farmhouse yellow, because that's the color the farmhouses were around Earlville. And I come to the cow, and the cow all, all alone out there in the middle of that field. And I, uh, my mother had always told me that when people were all alone, that, that they got sad and they got lonely and they got blue. I said, ah, you know, it works for people, must work for cows. So I, I colored that cow blue. Uh, next day, I hand, hand my picture in. The day after that, the teacher hands them all back, all except for mine. And she says to me, Gary, she says, would you come up to the front of the class? And I thought to myself, wow, I stayed inside the lines better than anybody here. So I went up to the front of the class and my teacher held that picture up over my head. And she said, class, she said, look at this stupid, stupid picture. She said, everybody knows that cows are brown, cows are black, cows are white. Sometimes cows are brown, black and white, all three. She says, never, ever, ever are cows blue. She says, Gary, don't ever do anything this stupid again. She called my mom and my mom had to go to school, which was a big deal for my mother. And um, and, and the teacher told her, she said, I think there's something wrong with Gary. He colored a cow blue. I think he might he might need psychological help. Uh, and so so that night, my, my mother and my dad called me into the living room and they sat me down and my mom says to me, she's Gary, why did you color that cow blue? And I said, well, she's my, you know, I mean, it wasn't really me. It was you. I mean, you were the one who told me that, that when, when people are by themselves, they get sad lonely and they get blue. I figured it works for people, it must work for cows. And so my mom said to me, you know, you go outside and play for a while. Your dad and I have to talk about this. So uh, I went outside and um, you have to realize that um, my parents um, were, were working people. They, my, my mom had to drop out of school in the eighth grade during the depression to go to work. My dad had to drop out of school in the third grade uh, during the depression to go to work. So these are not what you would call today well-educated urban liberals. I mean, these were, these were hard scrabble working people. And um, I really didn't know how this was gonna turn out for me. So you know, after about a half an hour, my mom and my dad called me back in and my, my mom said to me, she says, Gary, says, your dad and I talked about this. And we decided that the next time you wanna color cow blue, you go ahead and color cow blue. So she called my teacher and said, hey, you know, it's fine with us. Don't, don't, don't bother him. If he wants to do it, let him do it. And so, uh, you know, that was really the first validation that I ever had of creativity. Uh, I've still got that picture hanging in my office up over my desk. Um, and, and about, I don't know, two weeks later, the teacher gave us another assignment. And this time the assignment was that we had to, uh, we, we had to write a, a one page paper on what we did on our summer vacation. And, you know, the kids wrote, oh, you know, they went to Chicago, or they went to Wisconsin Dells, uh, uh, the, you know, the, they stayed home on the farm, uh, whatever. So I wrote my one page paper about how I went out in my backyard and I used string, tin can, tin cans and aluminum foil. And I built a, a rocket ship and I, I went to the moon. And my teacher just passed that paper back and dropped it on my desk and said, well, that must have been a very interesting vacation. And um, so, you know, from, from then on, I, I went ahead and colored a lot of cows blue. Um, the, the, other, the other thing that I owe my, my parents, especially my mother, uh, when I was growing up is that uh, she worked in a school cafeteria. She was a cook in the school cafeteria. My father ran the town pool hall. And even back then, that was kind of a sleazy, uh, sleazy thing to do. Um, but my mother once, once said to me, she said, you know, Gary, if, if you want to get out of this town, you don't want to spend the rest of your life here. You don't want to grow up and wind up running your dad's pool hall. She said, the one thing you can do to make that happen is to read read, 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 and that will get you out of this town. So I read, I, I read constantly. I, I had a, I got a card to the library when I was, uh, I don't know, six years old. And uh, they, they used to 
to just devour books. Uh, but my favorite books uh, are, I mean, what do kids read? I, I read comic books. Uh, I, I read every comic book I could get my hands on. And, um, you know, I would go down to the Andy Giles B Street Smoke Shop on Monday morning when the con new comic books came in and I would read all I could uh, before he threw me out. And, and uh, then I'd buy whatever I could afford with my allowance. And then I'd trade those with other kids for other comic books. And uh, I grew up reading comic books. And, um, you know, my mother never once said to me, you know, don't read those or rot your brain. Uh, never once. I mean, I, reading was reading. <laughs> so right. my books, I'm, I'm fine. The, my other reading material of choice was uh, what my dad read uh, because they were all over the house. And my dad read what, what at the time was called true crime fiction. And these were magazines, uh, you know, standard magazine sized magazines but they, they had stories in them of true crimes. And by true crimes, I mean murders. Uh, and and they, would, they would illustrate these stories with sometimes very graphic photos of the murder scene. Uh, if you ever saw a movie with Tom Hanks called Road to Perdition, uh, Jude Law played a photographer who would listen in on the police radio scanner and whenever he heard of a murder he would go to the murder scene sometimes get there before the police and and sometimes stage the bodies so they were more photogenic and he would take pictures of them and then he would sell them to exactly magazines like this there was a very famous photographer called Ouija and that, that was how he made his living and uh, that was what my dad read uh, you know <laughs> true crime magazines with pictures of real murders and I, I, I read those and my mother never well, she really couldn't say don't read those because my dad read those, but uh, she, she never criticized me for that. Luckily, uh, I graduated to a better class of crime fiction. I discovered noir mysteries and got into uh, uh, Chandler and Hammett and uh, uh, Spillane and some of the some of the better writers. But that was how I spent my youth. And, um, you know, now parents come to me and they say, geez, you know my kid only reads comic books are now graphic novels, you know, and I, I what, why, what do I have to do to get them to read good literature? I, I, you know, my only response to that is, well, didn't hurt me. I mean, <laughs> uh, when, when it came time for me to write, write my novel, well, I've written, I've written a lot of novels. I, I, uh, I started writing short stories and, um, wrote a lot of short stories. Um, and I started to realize that instead of writing 12 short stories, I could write one novel and uh, I'd probably make more money at it. So I, uh, I wrote a novel, it was called Killer Bowl. It was all about football it was played uh, in, the, in the distant future where it was played as a, uh, uh, a, a contact, uh, like a, a MMA wrestling, kind of thing with uh, full contact. Uh, it was a blood sport. Each team had one uh, hidden sniper who had a rifle with one bullet. Uh, they played it with knives and mallets and clubs. And um, I predicted a lot of things in that book. I predicted the uh, the mixed martial arts uh, kinds of events. I, I predicted the gas crisis. I predicted the cell phone and the internet, uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, Doubleday bought that book and published it. And it is still my most popular science fiction book. Um, you know, I still get, I don't know, 30, 40 letters a week about Killer Bowl. Wow, what a great nice. uh, Killer Bowl is. Sold up pretty well, published in 1976. And uh, Doubleday gave me a contract for, uh, for three more books. So uh, the next one was A Generation Removed. Um, the one after that was a resurrectionist. Both of them were pretty hard science fiction novels. So for my fourth double-day book, I wanted to do something uh, totally unusual, totally off the wall, totally outside the envelope. And I wanted to incorporate the two loves of, of 
my youth growing up in Earlville, which of course were comic books and hard-boiled noir fiction. Um, so I, I was looking around for a premise for a novel like that. And, um, you know, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons one Saturday morning, you know, uh, for right, yeah. research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, yeah, for research, I told my wife, you know, just, just for research here. Uh, and uh, the cartoons were pretty simplistic, but I, I was taken with the commercials because they had commercials with cartoon characters, uh, Captain Crunch, uh, the Tricks Rabbit, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, uh, Tony the Tiger, and cartoon characters talking to kids, talking to real kids, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. And I said, you know, what a great idea that would be for a novel. What if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? So uh, I, I spent a year researching cartoons to see what kind of things cartoons did uh, that would be funny in a real world. And, um, and took a year researching it, took another year writing it, took me two years. And uh, at the end of the two years, I, I had uh, come up with uh, Who Censored Roger Rabbit. I, uh, I created Roger because I wanted Roger to be a kind of Disney-esque character. And this was way before my, my relationship with Disney. I mean, I, I looked at Disney's characters. Disney did not have a, a lovable rabbit as a major star. I mean, Warner Brothers had Bugs Bunny, but uh, Disney had nobody. So I wanted, right. I wanted to create him as a, as a, you know, a lovable rabbit character. Uh, I named him after my, uh, my only boy cousin, Roger, um, Eddie Valiant. Um, I based him on, you know, every private I had ever read, Sam Spade, uh, Mike Hammer, uh, Philip Marlowe. Uh, I named him Eddie after my, my dad. My dad's name was Eddie. Uh, Jessica, <laughs> my proudest creation. Uh, Jessica, if you look at Earlville, where I grew up, uh, through some weird anomaly, the boys outnumbered the girls by 35 to 1. So, it, you know, good luck getting a date if you were the president of the Checkers Club, right? So Jessica was an amalgam of every woman that I fantasized over when I was a kid. Uh, she's Rita Hayworth. She's Betty Grable. She's Veronica Lake. Uh, she's Marilyn Monroe, uh, and uh, she's uh, Amelia Lakowicz, uh, who you've probably never heard of, but uh, that was a girl that uh, I always wanted to date when I was uh, in, from eighth grade through senior in high school, as she would never give me the time of day. So uh, that's that's Jessica. And, um, you know, I wrote the book. Um, it's clearly the best thing I'd ever written. I mean, it was, it was amazing, amazing book. I sent it to Double Days, the fourth book in my four book contract. And uh, for the first time in my writing career, I mean, I'd written tons of short stories and written those novels. So the first time in my writing career, I got to reach Double Day rejected my book. And uh, so I called my editor and I said, Sharon, I, why, why did you reject this? I mean, this is this is the best thing I've ever done. And she said, oh, yeah, I agree. She said, it was really good. It was funny and, 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 and just an amazing, amazing book. But she said it was so different from anything you've ever written before and so different from anything anybody's ever written before that I had to take it to the marketing department and uh, get approval from the marketing department. And they were the ones who rejected it. So I went to the marketing department and I talked to the head of marketing. I said, Chuck, why did you reject my book? And he said, well said, you know, we all read it and we, we really liked it, but um, uh, th- there's no category for it on the bookstore shelves. It's not a regular fiction novel. It's not a children's book. It's not a regular crime novel. Uh, we can't sell this book. There's no, there's no category for it. There's no space for it on the bookstore shelves. I said, look, Chuck, what would you do if somebody today gave you The Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland or Gulliver's Travels. What would you do with those? And he thought for a minute, and he said, nah, couldn't sell those either. So um, I went back to my agent 
I said, Bill, you know, if I can't sell this book, who says it, Roger Rabbit? If I can't sell this book, I don't want to be a writer anymore because this, this is what I want to write. And uh, so he said, I oh, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll find it a home. It's a great book. We'll find it a home. So he started sending it out to other publishers, um, other editors at the same publisher. And uh, along, along the route, it got 110 rejects, 110 different editors and publishers rejected that book. Uh, my wife used to call my trip out to the mailbox every morning with the daily disappointments because I'd go out to the mailbox and come back with, you know, one, two, three, sometimes 10 rejects. And um, so finally, the 111th submission, uh, it went to St. Martin's Press, which was a small press center, landed on the desk of a woman named uh, Rebecca Martin. And uh, Rebecca had just published a major bestseller for St. Martin's Press. And so the president of the company gave her a, uh, a vanity project. He said, look, you know, the next book you publish, you can publish whatever you want. Any book you want to publish, we'll publish it. And about that time, Roger Rabbit came across her desk and she loved it. Uh, every editor who read it loved it. It was always the marketing department who said, we can't sell this book. Um, so Rebecca read it, loved it, and took it to the president of St. Martin's. She said, this is the book I want to publish. Nice. And uh, so the president said, all right, I'm going to take it home tonight. I'm going to read it and I'll let you know in the morning. So he took it home that night, came back in the morning, called Rebecca Ann and said, look, you know, I told you I could publish any book uh, you wanted, but you, uh, you can't publish this because I can't sell it. And uh, so Rebecca stepped up to the plate and said, look, you told me I could publish any book I wanted, either publish that or I quit. And by golly, they published it, albeit in very, very small quantities. There's, I think they published 5,000 copies, which is next to nothing. And, um, you know, people, people ask me if I could relive my life, if I, could, if I could go back in a time machine and do something different, what would I do? And I, I, I always say that I would, I would go back and uh, I would go back to, the, to 1981 when that book came out because uh, that book sold for $2.99. And today, if you can find that book on eBay, it's well north of $500. So I would go back in a time machine and I would have bought them all, you know, bought them all. And I would put them in a barn somewhere and then I'd bring them out today and be a very, very wealthy man. But um, uh, it, it did came, come out and... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, came out in 1981, but I sold it in 1980. It took a year for it to come out. And uh, in that year, it was mid-1980, um, I got a call at home on my home phone. And I answered it, and the guy on the other end of the line says, this is Gary K. Wolf. I said, yeah, yeah, it is. Just, I, this is Roy Disney from the Walt Disney Company. I said, <laughs> Right. Well, Disney calling me at home on my home phone. That's rich. And I said, I thought it was one of my friends, you know, having me off. And he said, no, 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 it's really Roy Disney. He says, I just read your book. And I wondered if you'd be interested in letting the Walt Disney Company make a movie of it. And I, yeah, right. The book hasn't even come out yet. How'd you get a copy of my book? Well, it turns out somebody at St. Martin's Press, and I never found out who. I, I tried and tried because I wanted to. I wanted to kiss her or him full on the lips for doing this, but somebody sent a copy of the manuscript to the Walt Disney Company. It said, hey, we're publishing this and we think you'd like it. And uh, it made its way up to Roy Disney and Roy Disney said, yeah, you know, I, I, we would like this. And uh, mm -hmm. so uh, Roy Disney said, well, he said, uh, if, you, if you're willing, we'd like to make this into a movie. And they offered me more money that I had made for everything I'd ever written before that put together. And so, you know, I said, of course, well, uh, I don't know if you've read the book. You should read the book. Everybody should read the book. But um, the book I thought was unfilmable. Um, for, and I thought it was unfilmable in a realistic way. I, I didn't think that you could do it creatively and uh, really do it well, because first of all, you had the whole, 
cartoon character and human being interaction. You had that whole thing. Um, I had used some conventions in the book. Um, for instance, in the book, the characters are um, characters who appear in uh, comic strips and comic books, and they're they're photographs, and they talk. They don't actually speak in in vocal words. They speak in word balloons. So if you want to talk to a tune, you have to read him and, uh, you know, his word balloon comes up and you read him. And if he turns around and his word balloon turns around. And so you either have to learn to read backwards or go on the other side of him. And, um, you know, when people, somebody shot with a tuned gun, it produces a bang balloon and that uh, bang balloon, you can pick it up. They're very brittle. So you have to be careful when you pick it up because they're, they're, they're they can break very easily. But if you pick it up uh, and preserve it, then if you find another tuned gun, you can produce another bang balloon. And if the two bang balloons match, that's the gun that uh, that committed the murder. Uh, when somebody plays the piano, the piano notes go drifting off, and you can you can collect the, those rolls of piano notes and cut them into eight by ten sheets, and that's where sheet music comes from. Um, I had all kinds of stuff like that in the book that. I, I didn't. I thought made it a, an unfilmable book, um, but if Disney was willing to give me that much money to try, I said, uh, sure, go ahead and try. So you know, for the first uh, couple of years, they pretty much proved me right. They really did not have the clout or the expertise to, to do this. Uh, they tried. Uh, they tried combining live action and animation, but admittedly. In uh, 1981, 82, 83, the technology was not there yet, and they mm -hmm. they could not do it realistically. They could barely do it at all. And so, in '83 or '84, uh, Disney came to me and said, "Look, um, you know, we're not having any luck doing this as a live action animated movie. So, what would you say if uh, we did it with the cartoon characters wearing costumes like they do at Disneyland?" And I'm thinking, oh, geez, you know, I'm going to have I'm going to have a movie with the stock Disney characters. I'm going to have Fred McMurray playing Eddie Valiant. And I'm going to have Haley Mills playing Jessica. Uh, Dean Jones is the rabbit. And uh, Kurt Russell is baby Herman. You know, I said, ah, don't you think that compromises the principle just a little bit? And they said, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. So they they went ahead. And, and they were spinning their wheels. And I, I, I kind of expected they would spin their wheels and the project would never get done. Then yeah. in 1985, uh, Michael Eisner came on board. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and he brought with him uh, Jeff Katzenberg. And the two of them had worked together at 20th Century Fox. And um, they, they had a pretty successful record, uh, track record. and. Um, they did something uh, for Roger Rabbit that nobody at Disney had ever done for any Disney movie before. They brought in an outside producer. And that outside producer was a little known guy named Steven Spielberg. And so uh, Steve Spielberg comes to work on my movie. And when, when Spielberg comes to work on a movie, things get done. Yeah. Uh, as an example, back in 82 or 83, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers. And he said, look, we're doing this live action animated movie. And, um, we, you know, we'd like to have Bugs Bunny in the movie. Just Bugs Bunny comes out. He oh says, gosh. what's up, Doc? And munches a carrot and walks off. What do you think? And Warner Brothers says, get lost. Get lost. There's no way Bugs Bunny is ever going to be in a Walt Disney movie. That is just never going to happen. So, uh, in 1986, Steve Spielberg goes into Warner Brothers and makes the identical request. You know, we're making a live action animated movie. Can we have Bugs Bunny? And to Steve Spielberg, Warner Brothers says, of course, of course, take, take Bugs. What, what about Porky Pig? Don't you want him too? Or what about Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner? And, you know, Seventy Sam and, and Tweety Bird and, and Sylvester the Cat. You know, take them all, take them all. And, um, so we, we got all of the Warner Brothers characters and the only, the only requirement uh, was that Bugs being a bona fide uh, cartoon superstar, 
had a contract. And in his contract specified that um, he had to be in every scene with Mickey Mouse. You could not have Mickey Mouse on screen without having Bugs with him because they were co-equal superstars. And so Bugs and Mickey had to be in every scene together. Uh, so when you see, uh, oh, and, and the other thing, they have to have the same number of words of dialogue. So when you see the scene of them parachuting uh, oh, yeah. down with, uh, with Eddie Valiant, uh, with Bob Hoskins between them, uh, they, are, they have exactly the same amount of screen time and exactly the same amount of uh, words of dialogue. Oh. Um, yeah, that, that something I, uh, I just found this out just very recently, I didn't, didn't know this, but uh, one of the other requirements that Disney put on the Disney animators was that uh, they had to use the Warner Brothers characters from uh, 1986, which are considerably different from the Warner Brothers characters in 1946 when the movie was filmed. Uh, if you look at the two, Bugs Bunny looks very, very different in 1946 than he does now. Uh, so does Porky Pig, so they, they all do. But, but Warner's was pretty adamant about wanting to use the modern characters, not the old ones. Disney was, the Disney animators were just as adamant about using the old ones. So now we, we, we have to use the old ones. So what they did was to do two versions of all the Warner Brothers characters. They animated uh, the scenes with the new characters and with the old characters, both. They showed the scenes with the new characters to Warner Brothers and they put the scenes with the old characters in the movie. And Warner Brothers was not aware of this until the movie came out. And when the Warner's execs saw that movie and realized that that was the 1946 books, not the 1986 books, they went nuts. But because the movie was such a phenomenal success, um, you know, highest grossing movie of the year, um, they started to realize that this opened up a new revenue stream for them and they started selling t-shirts with the old characters and the new characters. So it had a good ending. But um, to show you uh, how the animators felt about Warner Brothers, uh, they hated Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers was constantly making these unreasonable demands on them. And um, so in that scene, when um, Roger and Bugs are parachuting to Earth, um, they wanted uh, Mickey to give Bugs the finger on the way down, okay? Now, <laughs> this is done as, as what they call a gag in the margin. If, you, mm -hmm. uh, if you're aware of how film works, film goes through a camera 24 frames a second. Animators learned in the early, early days of animation that they could screw around with six of those frames or cells, as they call them. Um, the human eye couldn't see. So they put these little jokes in the movie and they wanted to put as a gag in the margin, Mickey giving books the finger. And this would only be visible to the projectionist who was projecting the movie in a movie theater. Nobody else could see it uh, too fast for the human eye. Um, so uh, they were gonna do this. And um, uh, the movie was being animated in London by Dick Williams, who was the lead, uh, the lead animator. Uh, and Dick had, had assembled a group of kind of mini United Nations top drawer animators. A lot of uh, animators who came over from the former Iron Curtain countries, uh, a lot of animators who came up from South America. Uh, and it was, it, it was a real tower of Babel because uh, <clears throat> very few of these people spoke English. So in order to speak to the like the, the Russian guy, you had to speak to the Greek guy, you would speak to the French guy, you would speak to the Spanish guy, you would speak to the Russian guy, <laughs> and then we'll come back. So they, uh, I think it was an Estonian guy, I, I'm not sure, who, who was given the assignment to do the scene with <laughs> uh, Mickey giving Bugs the finger. And so, of course, it went through three or four different people before it got to him and then came back and and then the final, if you if you watch it, and you can now watch it 
on DVD, you can go frame by frame and you can see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he screwed it up. And instead of having Mickey give Bugs the finger, he has Bugs giving Mickey the finger. So entirely the wrong message. Um, <laughs> um, you know, oh, movie, movie came out in, oh my gosh. movie came out in 1988. Um, and, uh, you know, won four Academy Awards. Uh, it was the highest grossing movie of the year. Uh, got me a, me a movie deal with, uh, with Disney and, uh, kind of validated my mother who told, who told me to, you know, keep drawing blue cows. I know that's, that's wonderful. And you mentioned uh, the movie being a sensation. Uh, that actually brings me to my next question. Did, did you, did, did you know that the movie would become such a big sensation that it is now? Oh, no, no. I, I, I not only did I not know, nobody knew. Um, when, uh, uh, when we were making the movie, um, they, uh, the rule of thumb is that uh, a movie for adults can be uh, any length. I mean, there are three-hour movies for adults. Oh, yeah. A movie for kids has to be 90 minutes, no more than 90 minutes. Almost every movie that you see that's a kid's movie is 90 minutes. Right, because kids so, have short attention spans. Yeah, short attention span. So um, they filmed the movie, and um, the, the movie came in at about an hour and 58 minutes uh but nobody knew nobody i mean not the directors not disney not spiel spielberg not anybody nobody knew who was going to come to see this movie they didn't know if adults would come to see it or if kids would come to see it or what so they didn't want to make it that long for fear that if it turned out to be a children's movie the children wouldn't come to see it so they they cut they cut scenes and they cut it down to uh, an hour and 36, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the scenes they cut are uh, scenes that um, bits of them remain in the movie and um, are a little puzzling when you really think about them. There, there, was a, there was a scene early in the movie, well, not early, but midway through the movie when... Um, Eddie Valiant goes into Toontown. He goes into Toontown before he goes into Toontown at the end. He goes into Toontown and um, he discovers Jessica having a meeting with Judge Doom. And um, it leads you to believe that Jessica is somehow um, involved in the murder of of Archie Maroon, that she had something to do with that. And um, um then the uh judge doom uh sees eddie grabs him the weasels tie him up and they put a pig's head on him uh it's a cartoon pig's head they put a pig's head on him they take him out of toontown they dump him out front of his office and he goes into his office with his pig head and he looks in the mirror and he's got a pig's head on so he goes into the shower and he washes the pig's head off and if you ever saw a psycho uh, with Janet Lee, the, the scene is very reminiscent of uh, Janet Lee, the shower with Psycho. He, he's washing off the pig's head, and like Janet Lee's blood in Psycho, the pig's head goes down the drain and circles around down the drain. So Eddie Valiant comes out of the shower and out of his bathroom. And at that point, that, that, everything prior to that was cut. So what we're in the movie now picks up is Eddie Valiant coming out of his bathroom and he's wearing uh, his tie, but no t-shirt or no shirt because that's what he had on in the, in the bathroom. And that makes no sense. I mean, why, why would a guy be coming out of his bathroom wearing a the, the, the tie with no shirt? Uh, and then Jessica comes in and says, hey, I, you know, I'm not... I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. And that, the comment that she was making was a comment on the fact that she, he had caught her with Judge Doom and thought that she was bad. Uh, and then Dolores comes in and says painting with watercolors. But um, that scene in context doesn't make any sense. But if you know what was cut, 
it does right um, the the day that the movie premiered it premiered in just about right now for june 20th in 1988 and um um we of course i went to the premiere uh which uh radio city music hall in new york city and the, uh, oh wow yeah the next day um we had uh, my wife and I were in, a, were in a hotel room that Disney had given us that was that overlooked Radio City Music Hall, and uh, I went to the window in the morning. I got up at seven. And I went to the window in the morning, and I looked out, and there was a line of people waiting to get in the theater, all around the block. And the theater didn't even they were doing a special showing at eight o'clock, and the line went all the way around the block to get into an eight o'clock show, and it was seven o'clock. And uh, that was our first indication that uh, this was going to be a, you know, pretty big hit. Um, later that day, uh, I had heard that Macy's had merchandise and I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to check out the merchandise, see what kind of Roger Rabbit merchandise there were. I, you know, maybe, maybe they'd have a doll or something. And, um, and my wife and I went over to, to Macy's and uh, which was just down the street from Radio City and um, I walked in and I asked the young woman at the information desk I said hey do you have Roger Rabbit merchandise and she said yes we do and I said well uh, where is just second floor I said where on the second floor she just no second floor so we went up got off the elevator and the entire second floor was Roger Rabbit merchandise as far as I could see there was Roger Rabbit merchandise and I, uh, I, I had told my wife that I was going to buy. I told my wife I was going to buy the first piece of Roger merchandise I saw, which happened to be a uh, a talking Roger. That's going great. Yeah. Still going? And uh, so I bought this doll, yeah. and I'm carrying this doll around, and I look, and and in the next aisle over is Charlie Fleischer, also checking out the Roger Rabbit merchandise. And Charlie Fleischer is the guy that we picked to be the voice of Roger Rabbit. So I went over to Charlie. I said, Charlie, what do you think of this? She says, it's amazing. I said, Charlie, I just bought this doll with this, this talking Roger Rabbit doll. She says, that's my voice. It's my voice. It's my actual voice in that doll. <clears throat> so I said, well, would you autograph it for me? And he said, yeah, of course. Well, that was the <laughs> that was the first piece of merchandise that Charlie Fleischer autographed after the movie came out. So the first piece of merchandise he ever he he, he autographed as actually being Roger Rabbit, and uh, I've still got that too. So, uh, oh, nice, yeah. nice, awesome, really nice. So, so I'm kind of curious. Do you have any favorite scenes from the movie? Oh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, so many, um, you know, I was, uh, I was on the set for, for most of the filming. I, yeah, I'm a writer. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a movie maker and, and uh, movie making is a long, boring, tedious process and I get bored kind of easily, but, um, the, the scenes that, uh, that I recall that I really loved. Uh, you, know, you probably uh, you, you probably just go right by them, but because I saw them being filmed, um, I, uh, I they're they're dearer to me. And one of them is when Chris Lloyd is trying to put on that rubber glove uh, so that he can so they can grab the red shoe, uh, and Chris Lloyd, God bless him. Great actor, funny guy, terrific. Person. Oh yeah, but true, true but legend. Yeah, he's really, he's really Reverend Jim from Taxi. I mean, he's um, he's he's kind of a wild and crazy guy, and he kept putting that rubber glove on, and he was supposed to bring his hand up and snap the glove, and he could not get it right. He would bring it up and snap it, and it would only be like these fingers, or there, you know, it would only be like this finger. It would only be like this finger. And he kept trying and trying and trying. And oh God, he must have tried 50, 100 times. And finally, you know, he snapped it. And oh, thank God. And, and you know, when you see it in the movie, it, it probably took a half an hour 
to 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 film that. And when you see it in the movie, it's just boom. And, right. Yeah. You know, to you, that's just a guy putting on a rubber glove. But to me, that was one of the funniest things I ever saw in my life. Uh, the other thing at the end is when Bob Hoskins is uh, doing his little kind of carnival routine at the uh, oh. uh, at the Acme Warehouse. Uh, that, those scenes were all filmed in London. I don't, I don't know if that's common knowledge or not, but hmm. uh, at Acme Warehouse was actually a locomotive repair facility just outside London. Uh, and we rented that. And um, uh, in order to make the, it, it, it was winter, it was the middle of winter in London. So there was snow on the ground. Well, they, they melted the snow off with these huge jet engines. Uh, but uh, it didn't look like LA. So Steve Spielberg uh, sent a plane to Saudi Arabia and had them bring back 20 palm trees and the fully grown palm trees, which they positioned around the outside of the Acme warehouse to make it look like LA. But of course, in the in the evening, when the temperature went down, they were worried the palm trees were gonna were gonna die. So there was a guy whose job it was to every night wrap the palm trees in bubble wrap and um, uh, make sure that they, they didn't die. Um, the reason why we filmed in London rather than uh, the United States. Uh, Steve Spielberg likes the food in London, you know, go figure. No, no, that's it. Yeah, he does love the food in London, but that's not what we filmed there. Um, we needed a three story soundstage and that did not exist in the United States at the time. It does now, but it didn't then. So uh, we went to Elstree Studios where they had such a thing. And the reason we needed a three-stage studio was because on the top floor was the actual set. On the second floor were the puppeteers who were manipulating the actual objects on the third floor. And they, these objects were on sticks and the puppeteers were manipulating them through holes in the floor on the second floor. And then on the ground floor, we were a bank of video cameras. And the, the director, Bob Z, Bob Zemeckis, who, who directed the movie, Bob Z was on the first floor and uh, he was communicating with the, with the actors on the third floor by intercom. And he was looking at a, a video of what the camera was seeing. And he had uh, animators down there who would draw on the video camera so that he could see the relationship between the live actors and the animated uh, the animated characters. Because remember, those animated characters were not there. Everybody was making those up in their minds. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, three story. And uh, the, uh, um, the, the one scene that sticks in my mind, the one scene that is, oh, actually two scenes that, that stick in my mind. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scenes. Uh, both having to do with animation. Um, when Roger, Eddie, and Dolores are in that storeroom in the uh, in the terminal bar. Mm, yes, it's a good one. Eddie, and I think it's Roger who bumps the light, and the light starts swinging back and forth and back and forth. If you look at that scene, the the shadows of that light constantly moving. Now remember we're we're talking about 24 frames a second of film going through a camera, which means that every 1 24th of a second, you have to do a new drawing to match up with that. So that means that the perspective on Roger is changing and how his shadow is, is changing. Uh, 1 24th of a second, you have to keep doing uh, animated cells to match that up. And it's flawless. I mean, if you look at Roger's shadow, it's moving perfectly uh, with the shade of with the, with the shade of the light. And um, animator that that was so spectacular when animators first saw that when the movie came out, animators were just blown away by that scene. And they now refer to a scene that's that's an amazing piece of animation as bumping the light. That's what they call it. Um, the other scene that just blew me away uh, in the movie. Um, 
was the first scene, the cartoon, because mm -hmm. Dick Williams, who was the lead animator, did that entire opening cartoon himself, every single frame. And I remember again, 24 frames per second. So 24 cells per second. Um, he did things in there that he didn't have to do, things that he did because he wanted to show that this movie was taking animation up, not just one notch, but uh, the whole staircase full of notches. If you look at that scene, Roger Rabbit is in a kitchen with a black and white tile floor. Now, hmm. there's no reason why that floor has to be black and white in that cartoon. It can be solid black, it can be solid white. But by being black and white tile, every 24th of a second, the perspective on that floor changes. So the tiles, the perspective on the tiles change. And he had to work the perspective on how many tiles? One 24th of a second. And then to complicate it even further, if you look at that scene, you'll see that Roger's reflection is shown in the tiles. So Roger is reflected in these black and white tiles and the perspective on that is changing, you know, every 24th of a second. Um, it's an, an amazing, amazing job of animation. Lasts about three minutes. And, you know, you're going to see it. You're going to laugh. You're going to say, wow, that's a really funny, it's a really funny gag. Animators look at that and their jaws drop because that is such an amazing bit of animation. So I think those are my favorite scenes. Yeah. Oh, and uh, I, can't, I can't ignore uh, Jessica. I mean, when Jessica makes her first appearance, uh, that's just a blow away. And um, her, her dress, if you look at her dress, her dress sparkles like she's got diamonds on it. They wanted her dress to sparkle throughout the entire movie. Um, it, but the... the Putting those sparkles on her dress was an incredibly complicated bit of animation. And um, they finally decided, well, she's just going to wear a red dress for the rest of the movie. And uh, I think that actually was a good decision because I think having her in a sparkly dress all through the movie would have distracted from what was going on around. But, um, you know, when Jessica first comes out and, and walks down that stage and the, the interaction she has with the humans around her, uh, that just that that blew me away and it blew away everybody else. And um, uh, Jessica was the hardest character for the animators to draw because, um, well, they were used to drawing goats and pigs and ducks and you know barnyard animals, and here they were being asked to draw not just a woman but kind of the essence of a woman, uh, and they just couldn't seem to get it right. Uh, so uh, Bob Zemeckis, the director, went down to the London South End where all the strip clubs were and hired a stripper and brought her back, brought her back to the uh, studio so that the animators could see how a real woman walked in Jessica's dress. Then they had her do it again wearing just her bra and panties. And then they had her, had her do it again naked so that the animators could see the, the movement of the female body as she was doing that uh, doing that walk. And for weeks after, you could you could go back to the animation department and you'd hear the guy saying, Jesus, I've been working so hard. I forgot what a woman looks like. Let's watch the Jessica scene again, you know. <laughs> so those were my favorites. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. Nice. So in 2013, you proposed a prequel film to uh, Frame Roger Abbott. Can you kind of talk a bit about that? Um. Yeah, that, that kind of came and went. Um, you know, a lot of things happened. Uh, they had uh, they had one set for uh, 1999. The movie came out in 19, uh, 1989. They had one. They had one set for about three or four years later. Uh, they had a director, had a script, um, but it, it's it, it's at some point it's politics. Um, you know, I, if Roy Disney had stayed at Disney and hadn't been forced out by Michael Eisner, Roger Rabbit probably wouldn't have been done. But Michael Eisner came in, and as a result of Michael Eisner, the movie got made. 
uh, and Steve Spielberg, you know, but uh, the relationship between Spielberg and Disney kind of soured in the early 90s. And uh, Spielberg went off and did his own thing with Amblin and uh, didn't didn't want to have much to do with Disney. And, and he's, uh, he's the producer of all the Roger Rabbit projects. So if Spielberg isn't producing the Roger Rabbit projects, there are no Roger Rabbit projects. Uh, that kind of uh, ebbed and flowed. And, you know, in 2013, uh, they kind of repaired the, the rift and we're going to do it again. And then, um, then Pixar got involved and now Pixar seems to only want to do uh, Pixar projects with Pixar characters. Yeah. They don't really seem that interested in any of the classic Disney characters, not Roger, certainly, but not even Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck or right. any of the classics. They just want to do, mm-hmm. do stuff own. that's in their circle. Yeah. Yeah. They just want to do their own characters. So, um, you know, my, my sense of it, uh, Roger Rabbit was the most successful movie of the year when it came out. It, you know, in Hollywood, money money triumphs all. And, and my guess is that sooner or later, Disney's going to take a look at their projects. I mean, they're remaking they're remaking 101 Dalmatians, for God's sake. Uh, I making, know, yeah, they've remade so many movies. Uh, there is going to come a time when, when Disney's going to say, you know, we can get a quick chunk of change here by doing the sequel to Roger Rabbit and it will happen. Uh, when that is, uh, your guess is, is kind of as good as mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> so what piece of advice would you give to anyone who wants to get into writing books as a profession? Well, I, uh, if you paid attention, I think the, the prime piece of advice is don't give up. Uh, you know, if you believe in what it is you're doing, don't give up. Just keep plugging away because sooner or later, uh, you know, if you're if you're out there drawing blue blue cows and people are saying, "No, we want purple, we want orchid chameleons," uh, <laughs> just keep drawing your blue cow, and sooner or later, somebody's going to say, "Oh, blue cows, yeah, just what I've been looking for." Um, you you have to believe in yourself. That's oh yeah. that's the primary thing you have to believe in yourself so believe that what you're doing is is right believe that what you're doing is uh uh is important and you know i i have never ever in my entire life as a writer i've never written for money i don't do that i i i and in fact i truth be told i don't write for other people i write to amuse myself, I write things that make me laugh. I write things that I think are funny. I write things that I think are clever. I'm, I'm kind of fortunate that other people seem to seem to agree. Um, you know, part of the problem that I have is is a guy who is of a generation. A lot of the references that I use nowadays, uh, young people just don't get. I mean, they mm. they they don't know. Uh, references to movies that I sometimes throw into my books. They don't know references to singers or band leaders or songs that I throw into my books. Um, But again, I write to abuse myself and I'm not going to change because people don't know uh, what, what my, what what this movie that I'm talking about, they they don't know what that is. That's what Google's for, you know? Yeah. Uh, Go mm-hmm. Google it. I, I'm I'm not going to change for for my audience. I'm going to make myself happy, and uh, mm-hmm. luckily, uh, become a success doing that. Nice, awesome. nice. So now, to any Roger Rabbit fan or any fan of your work in general, what would you like to say to those who have supported your work? Oh, I mean, uh, I am I am going to I'm going to be known forever as the guy who created Roger Rabbit, and when I die. It will be on my tombstone. He created Roger Rabbit, and that's enough. I I I am so grateful to the fans who have supported me through the years. I, I just did uh, just did a, uh, a big fan event uh, where I was guest of honor, and I, I'm, I was oh, wow. I was overwhelmed awesome. by by the people who come up to me. Uh, I still get uh, oh. Aww. I would I would say thirty to forty 
pictures a week show up on my email of young women who are cosplaying <laughs> Jessica. Wow. And, what? Yeah. Oh and, my and, gosh. And I, I got to tell you guys, had I known when I was in high school, back in high school, when I couldn't get a date, that there would come a time when 30 to 40 gorgeous women would be sending me pictures of themselves in a low cut red dress every week, I would have written that book a whole lot sooner. So, uh, you know, I, I have a collection of, uh, of tattoos of my characters on people's body parts. And uh, there are thousands of them. I, uh, I, can't, I can't tell you how many uh, people have my autograph tattooed underneath a picture of my character. And uh, I'm overwhelmed by this. I, uh, I'm so grateful to the fans because they've accepted Roger Rabbit, they've accepted Jessica Rabbit, and um, they've kept them alive. They've, they've kept them alive. They're, they're, they're still viable characters 35 years after, after the movie. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yes, definitely. That's so wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely. These days show how that all these years. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. If people would like to connect with you, where can people find you? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, if you want to read more about me, you want to buy my books, uh, go to www.garywolf.com and uh, you'll, you'll read all about me there. Uh, you can buy my books. Um, I, I'm on Facebook. I'm really active on Facebook. I, I post all the Jessica Rabbit cosplay pictures on Facebook. So if that's a <laughs> you friend me there, but you got to friend me pretty soon because I'm coming up to my, uh, uh, my, my limit. So, uh, you know, if you want to follow me there, you got to get there soon. But um, I, I'd like to leave you with, with one movie story uh, that, that is kind of relevant. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. It, it's Steve Spielberg was in charge of going out and getting other studios characters and Steve wanted to make sure that everybody who was involved in this movie in a major way had uh, his or her favorite character in the movie. Bob Zemeckis, the director, his was the Roadrunner Wiley Coyote. Um, Dick Williams was Droopy. Uh, Bob Hoskins was uh, Heckle and Jekyll. Uh, so Steve came to me and he says, hey, he says, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite cartoon character? So I want to make sure I get it and put it in the movie. And I said, ah, Steve, you know, I got Roger, I got Jessica, I got Baby Herman, I got, uh, I got Benny the Cab. I think I'm covered. He says, oh, well, I want to do something for you. So I'll do something for you. So as I say, you know, now with a DVD, you can go through that movie frame by frame and you can see these gags in the margins, these little uh, six... 24ths of a second drawings that are invisible to the naked eye, but you'll be able to see. So if you go to the movie and you watch the scene where Eddie Valiant goes into Toontown, and as he's just going into Toontown, and the curtain opens and the birds are singing and it's all lightened happiness. And if if you freeze frame it there and go through frame by frame, look on your left and you're gonna see a red barn a yellow farmhouse, a green meadow, brown fence, and a blue cow standing all alone in the middle of that field. Uh -huh. Definitely. Definitely. So the last question that uh, Jake's about to ask is a question that we ask all of our guests at the end of each interview. Sure. Yes. So, of course, you know, this podcast is called Jake's Happy Nostalgia. Yeah. Hey, look at yeah. that. Yep. So <laughs> when you think of nostalgia, what do you think of, or in your own words, how would you define the word nostalgia? What, how would I define nostalgia? Yeah. Um, well, nostalgia is kind of, uh, to me, it's, it's a happy place. Uh, I, I go back to the times I was happy and think about what I was doing then. And, and you know, what was I doing then? Well, I was, I was reading, uh, I was watching black and white uh, programs on television. I was listening to the radio. Uh, I was going to the movies and watching, uh, watching black and white or color movies. And to me, nostalgia is happiness. Um, it, it's, it's my happy time and it's a place I can go to um, 
to get away from the, you know, the, the troubles and tribulations of the world today. Absolutely. Great words. Yes, off. absolutely. Well, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to do oh, this. My this pleasure. was a blast. Yes, Thanks, thank guys. You. I had a good yeah, time. thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you so much, you know, for, for Yeah, let me know when this goes live and I'll post it on my Facebook page. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, sure, and, thank, yeah. and thank you, you know, so much yeah. for, for what you've done over the years and to be a part of our lives. You know, keep up your great work and can I wait for next next for you, especially for future books coming away and all that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you. Of course. All right. Enjoy the rest yeah. of your day, Gary. Thank you. right, take care, Kerry. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It's goodbye from us as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Brings another episode. Enjoyed. Yes, we absolutely enjoyed our time with Gary K. Wolf, but you know, as always, this brings another episode of Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show to a close. And as always, what do we say, Jake? Keep nostalgia alive. See you next time. More fun episodes coming your way. As always, take care. See ya. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for tuning in to another wonderful Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show interview. Be sure to follow Jake and the crew on social media and stream the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And as always, remember to keep nostalgia alive. Bye bye.